This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton. Preface and Chapter One. Preface these fleeting sketches are all republished by kind permission of the editor of the daily news in which paper they appeared they amount to no more than a sort of sporadic diary a diary recording one day in twenty which happened to stick in the fancy the only kind of diary the author has ever been able to keep even that diary he could only keep by keeping it in public for bread and cheese but trivial as are the topics, they are not utterly without a connecting thread of motive. As the reader's eye strays with hearty relief from these pages, it probably alights on something, a bedpost or a lamppost, a window blind or a wall. It is a thousand to one that the reader is looking at something that he has never seen, that is, never realized. He could not write an essay on such a post or wall. He does not know what the post or wall mean. He could not even write the synopsis of an essay as the bedpost, its significance, security essential to idea of sleep, night felt as infinite, need of monumental architecture, and so on. He could not sketch in outline his theoretic attitude toward window blinds even in the form of a summary. The window blind, its analogy to the curtain and veil, is modesty natural, worship of and avoidance of the sun etc., etc. None of us think enough of these things on which the eye rests. But don't let us let the eye rest. Why should the eye be so lazy? Let us exercise the eye until it learns to see startling facts that run across the landscape as plain as a painted fence. Let us be ocular athletes. Let us learn to write essays on a stray cat or a colored cloud. I have attempted some such thing in what follows, but anyone else may do better, if anyone else will only try. End of Preface Chapter 1. Tremendous Trifles Once upon a time there were two little boys who lived chiefly in the front garden because their villa was a model one. The front garden was about the same size as the dinner table. It consisted of four strips of gravel, a square of turf with some mysterious pieces of cork standing up in the middle, and one flower-bed with a row of red daisies. One morning, while they were playing in these romantic grounds, a passing individual, probably the milkman, leaned over the railing and engaged them in a philosophical conversation. The boys, whom we will call Paul and Peter, were at least sharply interested in his remarks, for the milkman, who was... I need say a fairy, did his duty in that state of life by offering them in the regulation manner anything that they chose to ask for. And Paul closed with the offer with a business-like abruptness, explaining that he had long wished to be a giant, that he might stride across continents and oceans and visit Niagara or the Himalayas in an afternoon dinner stroll. The milkman produced a wand from his breast pocket, waved it in a hurried and perfunctory manner, and in an instant the model villa with its front garden was like a tiny doll's house at Paul's colossal feet. He went striding away with his head above the clouds to visit Niagara and the Himalayas. 
but when he came to the Himalayas he found they were quite small and silly-looking, like little cork rockery in the garden, and when he found Niagara it was no bigger than the tap turned on in the bathroom. He wandered round the world for several minutes, trying to find something really large and finding everything small, till in sheer boredom he lay down on four or five prairies and fell asleep. Unfortunately, his head was just outside the hut of an intellectual backwoodsman who came out of it at that moment with an axe in one hand and a book of neo-Catholic philosophy in the other. The man looked at the book, and then at the giant, and then at the book again. And in the book it said, It can be maintained that the evil of pride consists in being out of proportion to the universe. So the backwoodsman put down his book, took his axe, and working eight hours a day for about a week, cut the giant's head off, and there was an end of him. Such is the severe yet salutary history of Paul. But Peter, oddly enough, made exactly the opposite request. He said he had long wished to be a pygmy about half an inch high, and of course he immediately became one. When the transformation was over he found himself in the midst of an immense plain, covered with tall green jungle, and above which at intervals rose strange trees, each with a head like the sun in symbolic pictures, with gigantic rays of silver and a huge heart of gold. Toward the middle of this prairie stood up a mountain of such romantic and impossible shape, yet of such stony height and dominance that it looked like some incident of the end of the world. And far away on the faint horizon he could see the lines of another forest, taller and yet more mystical, of a terrible crimson color, like a forest on fire for ever. He set out on his adventures across that colored plain, and he has not come to the end of it yet. Such is the story of Peter and Paul, which contains all the highest qualities of a modern fairy tale, including that of being wholly unfit for children and indeed the motive with which I have introduced it is not childish, but rather full of subtlety and reaction. It is, in fact, the almost desperate motive of excusing or palliating the pages that follow. Peter and Paul are the two primary influences upon European literature today, and I may be permitted to put my own preference in its most favorable shape, even if I can only do it by what little girls call telling a story. I need scarcely say that I am the pygmy. The only excuse for the scraps that follow is that they show what can be achieved with a commonplace existence and the sacred spectacles of exaggeration. The other great literary theory, that which is roughly represented in England by Mr. Rudyard Kipling, is that we moderns are to regain the primal zest by sprawling all over the world, growing used to travel and geographical variety, being at home everywhere, that is, being at home nowhere. Let it be granted that a man in a frock-coat is a heart-rending sight, and the two alternative methods still remain. Mr. Kipling's school advises us to go to Central Africa in order to find a man without a frock-coat. The school to which I belong suggests that we should stare steadily at the man until we see the man inside the frock-coat. If we stare at him long enough, he may even be moved to take off his coat to us, and that is a far greater compliment than his taking off his hat. In other words, we may, by fixing our attention almost fiercely on the facts actually before us, 
force them to turn into adventures, force them to give up their meaning and fulfill their mysterious purpose. The purpose of the Kipling literature is to show how many extraordinary things a man may see if he is active and strides from continent to continent like a giant in my tale. But the object of my school is to show how many extraordinary things even a lazy and ordinary man may see if he can spur himself to the single activity of seeing. For this purpose I have taken the laziest person of my acquaintance, that is myself, and made an idle diary of such odd things as I have fallen over by accident in walking in a very limited area at a very indolent pace. If anyone says that these are very small affairs, talked about in very big language, I can only gracefully compliment him upon seeing the joke. If anyone says I am making mountains out of molehills, I confess with pride that it is so. I can imagine no more successful and productive form of manufacture than that of making mountains out of molehills. But I would add this not unimportant fact, that molehills are mountains. One has only to become a pygmy like Peter to discover that. I have my doubts about all this real value in mountaineering, in getting to the top of everything and overlooking everything. Satan was the most celebrated of alpine guides when he took Jesus to the top of an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. But the joy of Satan in standing on a peak is not a joy in largeness, but a joy in beholding smallness, in the fact that all men look like insects at his feet. It is from the valley that things look large, it is from the level that things look high. I am a child of the level and have no need of that celebrated alpine guide. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help, but I will not lift up my carcass to the hills, unless it is absolutely necessary. Everything is an attitude of mind, and at this moment I am in a comfortable attitude. I will sit still and let the marvels and the adventures settle on me like flies. There are plenty of them, I assure you. The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. End of Preface and Chapter 1